This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This is the last episode on the road to Glasgow, and I feel like taking the gloves off. I've been to many press briefings at 2am, and so many people are pinning their hopes on the United Nations COP26, bending the emissions curve down. But listening to the Australian Parliament, I feel sick. The uncouth, unsophisticated, unintelligent bullying they go on with makes me sick. Overnight, the BBC's top story was how Australia had finally agreed to net zero by 2050. One MP, Tim Wilson, was quoted as saying, oh, we'll do it the Australian way, making a buck along the way. Nauseating. Of course, there will be a lot of money made here when we are exporting green hydrogen, green ammonia, green steel, and who knows, green beef. But just like the pivot by the Murdoch media recently towards embracing climate action, Australia's participation doesn't ring true to me. In this show, you will hear the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, saying, a handful of countries have brought humanity to its knees. I thought that was the most poignant comment. And four-fifths of global heating is caused by the G20 countries, meeting now in Italy. His exclusive press briefing that I heard at 2am is courtesy of Covering Climate Now. And we also hear um, President of the COP this year, COP26, Alok Sharma, courtesy of Covering Climate Now. Nigel Toppy talks about what business is doing. Professor Rockstrom talks about the media and Annika Molesworth shows the frustration that farmers in Australia feel being held back by the very party which is meant to look after them. Then we go to Alok Sharma. We hear from him. He's the UK president of COP26. And I was cheered to learn from the questions asked to him from journalists in Brazil, India and Canada that they are also fretting like I do about how their governments are still subsidizing fossil fuels and ignoring their citizens until it will be too late. But Alok Sharma was quite a model of diplomacy. He shows how the UK wants to keep 1.5 alive, despite the window of opportunity being barely open. Johan Rockström says the window is still open, but barely for this transition. Even if President Bolsonaro and President Xi Jinping do not come to Glasgow, their teams can negotiate the rulebook around carbon markets and putting a stop to fossil fuel subsidies. Every second word from him seemed to be consensus, and he says states must come to Glasgow armed with the currency of compromise. Alok Sharma is absolutely committed to the $100 billion per annum 
uh, that is dedicated already to climate vulnerable nations. And he says their trust has been hard won and must not be betrayed. So at COP26, starting yesterday, there will be leaders' summits and then complex negotiations. Meanwhile, the voices of Indigenous people, of non-state actors and community groups will also be heard. Dr Virginia Marshall is a Wiradjuri woman and lawyer. She will be at Glasgow and we'll hear just a taste of what she intends to achieve there. I hope after Glasgow, she and some of the others will come on the show to tell us how it worked out. And then to finish, we'll hear from artist Julia Zimiro with a dramatic piece which feels to me like the voice of the people. Look, uh, we do have a lot of influence, there's no doubt, and we've got to get more French about it. You've got to talk about politics and not be afraid about talking about politics. Antonio Gutierrez spoke to the Covering Climate Now press conference. As UN Secretary General, he says we are on the edge of the abyss. As I've been saying time and again, the climate crisis is a code red for humanity. Our planet is careening towards climate catastrophe. As we look to Glasgow, the time for diplomatic niceties is over. We need really to speak the unfiltered truth. The carbon pollution of a handful of countries has brought humanity to its knees, and they bear the greatest responsibility. Now, before Glasgow, the G20 leaders will meet in Rome, and they know their economies are responsible for four-fifths of planet-eating carbon pollution. If they do not stand up and lead these efforts, we are headed for terrible human suffering. All countries need to arrive with bold, time-bound, front-loaded strategies to reach global net zero emissions by 2050. To decarbonize every sector, from power to transport, farming and forestry. To shift subsidies from fossil fuels and polluting industries towards renewable energy and support for the just transition. To put a price on carbon and channel that back to creating green jobs and to phase out coal by 2030 in OECD countries and 2040 in all other countries. Solidarity is essential. Many countries in the developing world will need support to make this shift as they struggle with COVID and spiraling debt crises. And so developed countries must provide financial and technical support, bilateral and also through public and multilateral development banks. This includes, as we all know, providing at least 100 billion US dollars each year to the developing world for climate action between 2020 and 2025. It was not done in 2020. It will not be done in 2021. And we also need the world's biggest banks, public and private, and its wealthiest asset managers to step up. Mr. Gutierrez was asked about the $100 billion per year promised to flow to climate vulnerable economies. A credible presentation of how the 100 billion will materialize is, in my opinion, a fundamental condition to rebuild trust between developed countries and developing countries. And that condition will, of course, also create the conditions for developing countries to be able to do more in their efforts of both mitigation and adaptation. 
uh, there is, uh, you are from India, and um, uh, whenever I speak with Indian leaders, they always say that the Paris Agreement um, establishes uh, a principle of uh, uh, common but differentiated responsibilities according to national capabilities, which is true. That means that developed countries need to lead, but at the present moment, emerging economies must also go an extra mile. So everybody needs to do more. I am extremely worried, but still hopeful. Even after the Paris Agreement, uh, things moved slowly. I was in Katowice. It was a very difficult negotiation. I was in Madrid. It was a disaster. Things were moving slowly. And uh, only more recently, I think there was this kind of upheaval in which civil society use, but especially the private sector, the private sector started to be very clear that uh, we were going in the wrong direction. We have now a Glasgow alliance of uh, asset owners and, um, I mean, insurances, uh, pension funds, representing $90 trillion that committed to net zero in 2050. The, the technological evolution, the wake-up call in the private sector, and the upheaval in the public opinion, and especially led by the use, have finally created, I would say in the last two years, a very clear conscience that we are really on the verge of the abyss. Even today, climate change is an accelerator in several areas of the world of the conflict risks. If you look at the Sahel, we cannot say that the conflict in the Sahel is only due to climate change. Of course, there are many other reasons, political reasons, reasons uh, linked to the expansion of terrorism, uh, reasons linked to uh, inter-ethnic conflicts uh, and religious conflicts. But the truth is that uh, in the Sahel, there is a central problem of farmers and herders. And when water resources dwindle, the competition between farmers and herders becomes a, a, a very tough one. And if on top, farmers and herders belong to different ethnic groups, and on top of that, they have different religions, and I'm giving you situations that are real uh, in several parts of the African continent, then it is obvious that climate change is an accelerator of the factors of conflict. So uh, we cannot say that all conflicts in the world are due to climate change, uh, but it is true that climate change is a multiplier of many other negative things that happen in the world. My question is about your concern uh, regarding uh, the president of Brazil not attending. I know he's not the only one, but uh, it's been very uh, hard for the Brazilians to see, to see this. And what's your concern about him not attending? Well, I do not interfere in the political debate inside Brazil. What I want is that the Brazilian delegation in uh, Glasgow is able to participate constructively in the negotiation about Article 7. This is a conflict, a complex, complex negotiation. This negotiation has failed in Katowice, it has failed in Madrid. I hope that uh, the Brazilian, as the others delegations, will have a, a constructive approach to allow for Article 7 that establishes the global carbon market to be finally approved. This is my best wish in relation to Brazil for uh, um, Glasgow. May I say a final word, not as Secretary General of the United Nations, 
but as a citizen of the world and as a father and grandfather, it is a word of thanks for what you are doing and for uh, your work. Your work uh, in, a, in a world where sometimes uh, we, we are afraid that uh, uh, we see the head or the death of truth, I think your word in bringing truth to the debate on the future of our planet is an extremely important one, and I thank you very much for that. Nigel Topping is an engineer and founder of We Mean Business. He's the UK climate champion, and his role is to work with the private sector, with business, cities, everyone who's not a national leader. He reckons they've mobilised $90 trillion in the Glasgow Finance Alliance, and he's enthusiastic. We, we, we've been really thrilled, I have to say, by the enthusiasm with which the Race to Zero has been received in Australia and still think there's time to use the galvanising moment of COP26 to get real clarity that this is not, not just about you know, climate justice, intergenerational justice. This is also fairly and squarely a competitiveness issue. If you want to be involved in innovation and investment in new technologies and creating new markets, pretty much every major sector is being disrupted. And, you know, we often talk about Australia being lucky twice, right? <laughs> lucky in terms of fossil fuels and, and subsoil wealth, but also lucky, lucky in terms of the amount of land and sun that you've got. I was in Egypt recently, another country. They put, that, they put aside 7,600 square kilometres for solar. If we talk about green ammonia for shipping, if you've got 100,000 square kilometres of desert and the Suez Canal, that's, that's, that's another lucky country. Our our role was created to work with the private sector and local governments, so or, you know, states, cities, everyone who's not actually a country who's a party to the um, to the Paris Agreement. So, and the Paris Agreement really has three legs. So we have three big initiatives that we're running: the Race to Zero, which is about getting emissions to zero, but particularly focusing on what do we need to do in the next five ten years. The Race to Resilience, which is about driving um, climate ready infrastructure and built environments. And then mobilising private finance with Mark Carney, we've launched the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which so far has ninety trillion dollars of assets lined up behind the transition. So you know, also if you want if you want your shareholders to keep holding your shares, or if you want to get a loan from your bank, you need to start. If you're a business person and you think you can get away with not being in the race to zero, um, you might want to look at some of those signals. So many people in this race know that they've got to decarbonise the whole value chain. Christiane Figueres always says that our, our only boss in this race is is the atmosphere, and I would say the science. I mean, it's very clear that we have to halve emissions by by the end of this decade. Uh, but a lot of people are very confused about Australia, right? We don't understand the politics, but like you just seem to be in a great place to be really in this race um, and driving it. And I think, and, and, and of course, we understand there's, there's difference between federal politics and and state level politics, and and if you like industrial politics. Um, but but um, I can say is everywhere I go. This is a very serious race. Right? This is not an environmental race. This is an industrial competitiveness race. For, and yes, it's true that we all, you know, sometimes we say it's a race that we all win together or lose together. But within that, there will be countries and there will be businesses who win big and who lose big. There will be countries and businesses who, for whom whole sectors don't make the transition. You know, if you look at the whole, whole globe now, more than 70% of emissions are covered by net zero commitments within the race to zero every time i speak the numbers are out of date because it's changing so fast we've got over 6300 businesses uh, investors cities i think we'll i'm hoping we'll reach a thousand cities worldwide 
there's a big coalition of state level governments called the under two coalition who've just aligned their ambition to uh, net zero by 2050 that, that's a coalition of really 300 states that covers half of the world economy and a quarter of the population and i mentioned the figures um uh for for finance the 90 trillion so once the private sector starts saying that it's committed and it's starting to deploy resources that um, that, that, that often emboldens policymakers i would say that we need to keep building confidence so we need to see national governments fulfilling their promise when they signed up to the paris agreement to submit ever more ambitious national plans that's a that's a that's a national international treaty commitment based on the latest available science and the latest available economics and no one can say that we can't get to net zero by 2050 now because so many countries and companies and states and cities are doing it so to 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 not commit to that is actually a derogation of the commitment to the Paris Agreement. So, and of course, business needs that confidence from um, every level of policymakers so that they can know that their, their huge investments are, are, are de-risked. And there'll be a lot of pressure and some tough talking that the G20 and when they leaders, when they meet at the end of next week, will match that commitment. We noticed that all of Australia's big client countries are stepping up their 2030 targets. Um, whether it's US, EU, Canada, Japan, Korea, all getting in the 40 to 60% range. The energy economy is at the heart of this, of course. I, I read the recent proposal from the, the Business Council of Australia saying that a halving of Australia's emissions this decade could be driven by a fourfold increase in renewables on the grid, which is a path similar to those adopted by the US and UK to achieve full clean power on national grids by 2035. Of course, I started by saying, you know, with Australia being the lucky country, that should be even easier. I would expect countries like Chile, Australia, Egypt to, to really lead that race. And then through things like green hydrogen, green steel, green ammonia, be net energy exporters. I would really encourage you not to be a pacemaker and go fast and then pull out of the race, not to be a laggard and sit around at the starting line wondering whether you should join the race. But I think Australia's got all the, the natural resources and the, what's the right word to describe Australian character? The, 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 the kind of oomph you know, the kind of get up and get shit done kind of attitude um, that I think is exactly what is needed. Just just to finish, to any business leaders listening, I'd say the following. First of all, just think carefully about the company you want to lead. Um, so this is, this is more the heart argument. Um, do you want to be at the head of the pack? Um, and it, it, in terms of being proud about the, transition that you're leading um, and if so then join the race to zero as soon as possible if you haven't already second um, don't underestimate your political voice make sure you stress to your political leaders the need to avoid you know fancy slogans and fear-mongering this this challenge is way too important for that i said both in terms of intergenerational and climate justice but in particular in terms of industrial competition so let's really call on political leaders to focus on laying out ambitious and practical visions for transformation that, that actually helps Australian companies lead the transition worldwide. And, and finally, can we just get rid of this silly dichotomy between and targets and technology development? Obviously, we need both, right? I mean, yeah, a target on its own it, it is hard to implement because it needs a plan, but a, but, but, a, but a technology development roadmap without targets is also kind of too, toothless. No business leader would have a, um, a plan without a target or a target without a plan. So let's just call that out whenever we hear that. You know, in the UK, we've got a very long, very clear long-term goal, net zero by 2050. 
um, based on independent advice. Interestingly, that independent advice includes a scenario where the UK could get to net zero by 2042. My personal expectation is at some point in the next five to 10 years, that 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 will be dusted off as, as people realise that this transition is going faster and faster and faster because more and more people are piling in, more and more capital is piling in. But of course, we also have very clear um, five-year carbon budgets um, to get to 68% reduction by 2030, 78% by 2035. And you, you, you've you probably seen that more of the detailed policies have just been released about how to do that. Um, and that's what we're seeing in, I think, every country that's taking this transition seriously. Bold targets long-term, clear targets to back that up short-term, and then plans to meet those targets. So I, this, is, this is a very exciting time, but you've got to be in the race to have a chance to win it. I look forward to seeing many of you uh, in Glasgow. Professor Johan Rockström is a Swedish strategist. He led the team that developed the framework of planetary boundaries, and he's a director at Potsdam Institute of Climate Impact Research in Germany. Despite all the positive momentum we have around the world, which I also fully share, we also know that just three weeks ago, the numbers add up, unfortunately, to a pathway that takes us to 2.7 degrees Celsius of global mean temperature rise by the end of this century. That's only in 80 years' time. It's a place we haven't been in for the past four or five million years. It is passing the two degrees Celsius point where we enter terrain of, of unknowns in terms of risking to trigger irreversible changes that could make us drift unstoppably away from a state that we know for certain can support humanity. So there's a lot at stake, and that's why we're talking about urgency, is that the window is still open, but barely for this transition. Yesterday, we had a confirmation of this with the production gap report from the UNEP, showing that unfortunately, Despite all the promises of net zero plans, despite the G7 and even the G20 countries, despite countries like Australia actually having a positive political rhetoric in, in, the, in the public domain, we're still having a tremendous gap of investments planned on coal, oil and gas. The gap until 2030 is, is just staggering. 240% excess on coal, 57% on oil and 71% on gas. And I'm sorry to say it. Australia is actually still with, with, with red marks on all three of these when it comes to the trajectory between 2021 and 2030. So this is a deep concern and a big challenge. And in comes the IPCC 6 assessment report, which is the most important scientific baseline report we've ever stood on. We are entering a phase, which IPCC now confirms, of long-term commitments. For example, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming gives a high likelihood of at least two meters, two meters sea level rise on the long term. It will only be roughly 100 centimeters up until the end of the century, but it would be two meters over the next 2000 years. This is what the youth movement are concerned about, irreversible commitments on the long term. We have made the latest assessment of the so-called tipping elements, the big biophysical systems that regulates the stability of the climate system. We know roughly 15 of these. I say roughly because they are in the scientific frontier. Arctic sea ice, Greenland ice sheet, Atlantic overturning of heat, the AMOC, the thermohaline circulation of heat in the North Atlantic, the Amazon, and the West Antarctic ice shelf. We have more and more scientific evidence that these are interconnected. So, for example, when the Greenland ice sheet melts so fast, which is doing due to a two to three times higher rate of warming, 
So we have 1.1 degrees Celsius globally, but we have 2 to 3 degrees Celsius already in the Arctic, releasing massive amounts of cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic. This slows down, we know, the entire overturning of heat in the North Atlantic. The reason for this is that that whole engine is driven by the thermohaline gradient. So with more fresh water, less salinity, slower pace, the whole system slows down. It's slowed down by 15% already. This, we know, impacts on the rainfall systems across the tropics. So it can explain why we have more droughts and forest fires over the Amazon rainforest because the Amazon is impacted, the Amazon monsoon is impacted. But it also holds more warm surface water in uh, the Southern Ocean, which can explain the accelerated melting of the West Antarctic ice shelf. So we have so-called domino cascade effects between tipping elements that we're today forced to explore much deeper. This is why we need a planetary boundary framework. This is why I, I and Nigel Topping are so enthusiastic over translating science into science-based targets that can guide investments and businesses in the race to zero. And that this goes beyond just 1.5. It's also about all the biosphere systems that regulate the state of the planet. So land-based ecosystems and ocean systems have taken up over half of our climate debt, the largest subsidy to the world economy. But even more importantly, in a discussion like the one today, is that all the climate models, when they do projections to the future and give us a remaining global carbon budget of roughly 400 gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide of allowance to emit for a soft landing at net zero by 2050, Nigel's net zero targets, well, why do we have that budget? But the only reason the science gives us the budget is the assumption in all the models that nature will continue being resilient and providing this massive nature climate sink. Well, that is a big ask. That's a very optimistic assumption because the Amazon rainforest, for example, in the Brazilian part has already tipped over from carbon sinks to carbon source. So we're making very optimistic assumptions here. We just published just a few weeks ago in PNAS, the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences in the US, a study showing that if we did not have nature carbon sinks, we would have lost 1.5 already. Paris would have been gone. And if we do not invest in the resilience in nature, we have big difficulties in delivering on Paris. So we need to understand that our prosperity and this winning race to zero is about development within all the planetary boundaries. It's, it's an exponential transformative journey to zero. But policy needs to be on board. And here are my, at least, to say, personal asks for Glasgow, finally. Public statements on end of coal dates and end of the internal combustion engine, dates for closure. This, this is the strongest signal right into the investment landscape across the world. Secondly, we need to discuss seriously a global price on carbon. This has always been seen as theoretical. Now we're seeing it starting to really scale automatically for the, for the simple reason that the European Union, the, 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 the world's largest economic region, is having uh, an emission trading scheme price which is starting to bite. Over 60 euros per ton of carbon dioxide. It's starting to shut down coal fire plants across the European Union very fast. And of course, businesses will not accept to be outcompeted by imports of goods and services that comes from economies that are not taxing. So we will see a race to, to carbon pricing here as well, I foresee. We need to discuss that in Glasgow. We need money on the table, filling up the Global Climate Fund, of course. We need a policy agreement that this is the nature climate COP because we need the carbon sinks intact. That could be a success factor. I think we are today at this tipping point 
of a social transition where the journey to zero, if not has already, is very soon becoming unstoppable. The question is no longer whether we will have a fossil fuel free world economy. The question is, will we do it fast enough? So I think it is a very dire time, a very challenging time, but also a very exciting moment. And therefore, I, I very much agree with, with Nigel's upbeat signal here of joining the race. Thank you very much. And back to you, uh, Steve. Thanks very much, Johan. That was a, an actually uplifting but reality-checking um, presentation. What's interesting from what you were talking about is that 70-odd percent of people in all nations across the world have agree with the urgency and the need for action. What are, what are some ideas and uh, to push that along so that the political action reflects the public action? Media has a huge huge responsibility here and actually is is largely to blame i would even argue this mismatch between a majority of citizens across all nations in the world being concerned and wanting action on climate and the inability of political leadership to get that signal strongly across i i think media is and and, and you're a very important example there in australia unfortunately with with the murdoch concentration so, so I think that is one, one factor here we need to channel through between citizens and leaders in a much more direct way. I think we're doing a mistake by, by believing that um, activism and, and the youth movement and uh, uh, you know, the environmentalists are the ones to, to carry the weight here. Because as long as we rely on them, then uh, the big powers can always sit and say, oh, but this is just some kind of marginal uh, you know, sideline uh, fringe out of uh, uh, a wide population. We need to get the mainstream to speak openly. We need to get the bankers, the the, the car industrial leaders, all all the people who are uh, in different walks of life coming from trusted mainstream areas. And I'm talking about sports. I'm talking about music. I'm talking about culture. I'm talking about everyone in society that has a role as a trusted voice must step forward and and be that's much more powerful by the way than a scientist or an activist so i think this is what what made paris a success was that mayors in big cities in the world the covenant of mayors and business leaders through we mean business led at the time by nigel topping behind the scenes gave the confidence required and and i think that that's that's a key key piece of the puzzle here and that's what what makes me enthusiastic also that we see this happening we see this much more prominently today but i think we must see much more of it dr virginia marshall is a lawyer and expert in aboriginal water rights she will be going to glasgow and here she speaks with councillor kathy oak at melbourne university dr virginia marshall executive member of the indigenous people's organization australia Thank you so much. Yiridu Marang, everyone, in Wiradjuri. Can you start off by telling us about Indigenous participation in COPs historically and how participation may or may not be different at COP26 this year? Well, I think that uh, we've got to remember that COP26 is a really important event for Indigenous peoples across the world. You know, we know whether it's the Torres Strait Islander people in Australia uh, who have rising sea levels and uh, also, you know, land that they can use is far disappearing. And we are waiting uh, human rights to really step in internationally and also domestically to deal with those issues of unfinished business. So we have a very long list. 
Why is it important, in particular, for Indigenous voices to be there and be involved in the COP26 negotiations in November? Well, I think what we've got to do, we, we can't really think of COP26 as winners and losers. So we can't think it's just a time for nation states to get together and uh, agree or agree to disagree on different issues. So we really need to be there as voices because as First Nations people across the world, we have the knowledge that the other countries, the West included, require. We have an incredible innate understanding uh, of everything in the environment, uh, the understanding of water and how to maintain water quality uh, and water security issues. We have all of this knowledge. So without us being there physically or at least virtually, the planet is not going to really have uh, very good outcomes, not only due to climate change, but just to understand how these things work. And we've seen that in the fires in Australia in 2019, when cool fire practices came in to really be discussed seriously for the first time. So, you know, we have that knowledge and we have that understanding. So we need to really be involved and we need to be heard. What does it actually mean to be involved and to be heard in the negotiations? I mean, even if you just talk about it from your perspective. Yeah, I think it's really important that we firstly, and this is, you know, a a reflection on the 2019 delegate that went to Mexico City for the UN preparatory meeting for New York. So I sat there with a whole range of delegates from around the world, Ecuador, you know, Bolivia, et cetera. And we had commonalities, which really strengthens our understanding and our camaraderie across the world. So that's what COP is. Whether it's virtual or whether it's physical, it gets uh, an opportunity to see if we can actually learn their lessons and they can learn some of ours where we can really cross-fertilise that conversation. We know that we just can't sit on the sidelines. And, and honestly, we're coming towards 1.5 degrees. If we don't abandon looking at coal as the only way forward, we're not going to have a very bright future So climate change is a serious business, but it gives us an opportunity to talk business with our fellow colleagues across the world. After Glasgow meetings have have completed, what is the measure of success? What are your desired outcomes? I think success is always subjective, and that's because I'm a practising lawyer in native title. (laughs) We have to change our thinking. We have to be prepared to to actually compromise on some of the ways that we are living now so that we do have a future that's shared together. But as Indigenous peoples, we struggle with doctrine of discovery every day. We have a lack of decision-making and and also with communities, with COVID. You can see that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, have uh, really the lowest priority by governments uh, alongside those with disabilities. I wish you well in your extremely important advocacy efforts at COP. Thank you. Mananguo. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Molesworth represents Farmers for Climate Action. She is an agroecology scientist and farmer 
and loves her semi-arid landscape near Broken Hill. She was speaking at the Smart Energy Conference called Global Race to Zero. My home is a place of ruby red sands and horizons that stretch out forever. Sapphire blue skies are the playgrounds to wedge-tail the eagles, which soar to heights on hot updrafts of air. The sand crunches beneath your feet as you walk among delicate wildflowers and their fragrance perfumes the air. This is Willakali country in far western New South Wales. And the Willakali people have walked through this landscape for tens of thousands of years. And what an honour it is to grow food here. Among the trees and beneath the endless skies, we produce food, myself and my family, from the natural world. Food that goes to nourish people around the country. And my home is a place that captivates me, that fills me with awe and wonder. And when I breathe it in, I feel a great sense of connection, of belonging and responsibility to look after it. But my home is changing. Heat waves, droughts and dust storms are becoming more frequent and more intense. And for those who have never seen a dust storm, it is like a giant monster crawling along the land. The wind howls with fury. Sand lashes your skin like a whip and you have to hold a handkerchief against your face so you can breathe, but you still taste that grit in your mouth. The sky turns orange, then red, then a deep blood burgundy colour and you are engulfed by the sand monster and your world becomes dark. Climate change is not some abstract concept for farmers like me. Climate change is not something for someone on the other side of the planet to worry about and issue for a future generation. For farmers, the climate crisis is here. It is now and it is very, very real. Year after year, season after season, records are being smashed in high temperatures and low rainfall and more severe weather events. Droughts, floods and bushfires wreak havoc for food and fibre producers. And as a society, we are pumping dangerous climate destabilising gases into the atmosphere with an ignorant, she'll be right attitude. But one thing is certain, the science is clear on this, our unrestrained consuming and polluting behaviour guarantees we will not be all right. Climate change disrupts what food can be grown and where. It reduces food availability, increases food prices, and reduces the nutritional value of that food. So climate change is impacting farmers, and this concerns everyone, because it threatens every meal on every plate. And although there is this illusion and delusion that food security is not an issue for us in the lucky country, food insecurity is a very real uh, issue for our closest neighbours. Vulnerabilities exacerbated by a changing climate has the potential to uproot millions of people just outside of Australia. And if I was them, I'd want to come here. And it is the rural people, the farmers, who feel the effects first because they live and work so closely with the natural world. 
and they understand how it is hurting now. Alok Sharma is the president of COP26. He spent the last year traveling the world, trying to build consensus around taking the Paris Agreement up to the next level, where we can remain below 1.5 degrees of warming. When he mentions the complex negotiations around the Paris rule book, I think it's about the international carbon market. He does not mention stopping global subsidies to fossil fuels, which is increasingly urgent as it amounts to something like $11 million per minute, according to The Guardian. When he's asked about the UK approving new oil projects off the coast of Scotland, you can see how uncomfortable it makes him just as our new coal and gas projects should make us squirm. Thank you to Mark Hertzgold and the world's journalists who pressed Mr Sharma on these questions. The overarching uh, ambition that uh, we have got uh, is that we want to be able to say with credibility coming out of Glasgow that we have kept 1.5 within reach, 1.5 alive. And in doing that, you know, I have talked uh, personally to well over 100 governments at leader level, at ministerial level, at uh, a negotiator level. Uh, I have uh, traveled over the past eight, nine months to uh, around 35 countries, uh, some of them twice. uh, And uh, I have taken a consistent message. The first is that we are looking for countries to come forward with uh, ambition on uh, mitigation. Uh, So those uh, 2030 NDCs, as well as net zero commitments. Um, Secondly, uh, we have asked the uh, donor countries to step forward and deliver on the $100 billion that has been promised since 2009 uh, on an annual basis from 2020 onwards to support uh, developing nations. Uh, Thirdly, we've asked for countries to set out their plans on adaptation. And fourthly, for us to work together uh, to ensure that we can close off the Paris uh, rule book. I, I wanted to ask about the, the relationship between the U.S. and China, as we know that, that they're both very important players in this space. But we hear um, specifically from the U.S. perspective, the Biden administration calling things an era of strategic competition. So how can this COP build build consensus between two such important countries if they're coming from a place of competition and tension? I I have uh, obviously had an opportunity through COVID to visit a a, a lot of countries. Uh, I've obviously been to the US, I've been to China, I've been to to other countries as well in the G20. And every single one of them recognizes very clearly that climate change does not respect borders. Uh, and they, they they do understand that climate change is a, a big leveler. And, and in fact, in, in uh, just about every country, uh, you know, we can see the effects of climate change. So I think there is a, a very clear understanding that this is a shared uh, endeavor. Uh, and, you know, as I said, every country has said to me that they want COP26 to be a success. Uh, and so what I am now doing as we get together the next few days in Glasgow is to remind countries Uh, that this is a a shared endeavor, uh, and we need to do this for the sake of humanity. This is not about, uh, you know, uh, country A, B, C, or D. This is about us doing something collectively for the common good. Uh, And I think there is that understanding, uh, certainly in the conversations that I've had. So I I hope we we will be able to reach consensus at, at COP. Uh, but, you know, obviously, you know, China, uh, the U.S. or other countries which are going to be uh, vitally important for this equation. Uh, and uh, we will work uh, alongside them, along with everybody else, to try and forge consensus.
Can you confirm here today whether President Xi of China will be attending Glasgow? I hope that he will still uh, come. And as I said, we've got over 120 world leaders who are already committed to, to come to this, some of those uh, from countries where, uh, you know, it is a, a more arduous journey than for, for, for some, some others. Uh, so, of course, we want to see him. In fact, we want to see every world leader uh, coming. But what is also going to be very important is that, you know, after the two days of the World Leaders Summit, which are vital in terms of uh, setting the tone uh, for COP, we are going to go into these detailed negotiations. And, uh, uh, you know, China uh, is sending a, a negotiating team. Uh, you know, I'm going to be meeting with them uh, uh, later on this week in, in more detail to have those discussions. The recent IPCC report makes it very clear that we are likely to overshoot 1.5 C in the short term, which means that we will need negative emissions to bring temperatures back under the 1.5 C cap by 2100 per the Paris Agreement. So uh, to be clear, I'm not talking about carbon capture and storage, but pulling CO2 out of the air. Given the limitations on tree planting as a solution, do you envisage a massive carbon removal industry in the near future? Well, well, I think the, the first thing to just acknowledge, of course, I think the IPCC report was a wake-up call, quite frankly. I think uh, code red is the way that it's been described. I think that's absolutely right. The, the window to keep 1.5 alive is closing. The IPCC report was very clear on that. Uh, but it is still uh, ajar. And I think there is still an opportunity for us to ensure that uh, we take action now in you know, what I would describe as a decisive decade, uh, to ensure we're putting in place uh, the commitments on reducing emissions uh, so that we can keep 1.5 within reach. You know, I'm sure you will see uh, you know, new technologies that emerge uh, over time, which will uh, help us uh, fight uh, climate change. I know that you know, the UN production gap report that just came out recently shows that world governments still plan to produce basically double the amount of fossil fuels that are compatible with the 1.5 degree C world. The IEA found that we need to you know, basically stop all new fossil fuel exploration next year, and yet the UK is still considering approving permits for fossil fuel exploration, including the Cambo oil field. I know that you said that there will be climate checks in place and that um, you know, this will be done to meet the net zero goal, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit why, about why the UK won't just commit to ending fossil fuel exploration, which is you know, the most surefire climate check, and what kind of message it sends to other countries at COP as they weigh what their commitments are to reduce their emissions? Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing I, I would say is that actually, um, uh, certainly based on the discussions I've had around the world, people do see the UK as a leader on climate action. And uh, I mean, just to give you one statistic, uh, uh, since the year 2000, we have decarbonized our economy faster than any other G20 nation. So, uh, you know, we were the, one of the first major economies in the world to uh, put into law uh, uh, net zero. Um, the, you know, you, you have to kind of uh, uh, judge us on what we have achieved. Uh, in a short few years, we have built the biggest offshore wind sector in the world. I mean, literally in the world, the biggest offshore wind sector. Uh, and um, we have said that we're going to quadruple that. We put out a 10-point a, a plan for what we describe as a green industrial revolution at the end of last year. And we said we are going to go from... Um, 10 gigawatts, it's, it's more than that now, obviously, installed over this year, but from 10 gigawatts to 40 gigawatts by 2030. Um, and the reason that we've been able to do this and the reason we have built uh, the offshore wind sector so fast is because we have put in place the revenue mechanisms to allow the private sector uh, to uh, invest as well. So 
I would just say that, you know, please judge the UK and what we have uh, achieved so far on the issue of um, uh, future uh, licenses when it comes to oil and gas. As I've said, be very, very clear that we will, by the end of this year, set out the details of the climate compatibility checkpoint, uh, and people will have uh, an opportunity to look at that. Uh, and obviously, they, I'm sure there will be uh, commentary provided on that. Uh, but I think we, as a UK, actually have a pretty strong record uh, when it comes to tackling climate change and emissions. I know you met with the Queen uh, last week to discuss COP26. The BBC reported recently that uh, she has said that she is, quote, irritated, unquote, that world leaders are talking but not doing on climate. You have seen the IPCC report that was referred to, uh, and, you know, we've made some progress, but I think, you know, there are very many voices which want uh, world leaders to do more to make further commitments. I mean, I was in uh, Milan. There was a Youth for Climate event organized by our uh, colleagues in, in the Italian government. They were angry. They were angry with this generation of world leaders. For me, it's been very important that we have uh, society groups, uh, indigenous peoples, women's groups, youth groups represented, and that will absolutely be happening at COP itself. I think Her Majesty was absolutely right to, to make the point that we all need to do a lot more. Uh, and uh, you know, ultimately, you know, my role is to build consensus uh, at COP for us to get this over the line. But it is ultimately on world leaders to deliver. It is world leaders who signed up to the Paris Agreement. It is world leaders who make the commitments on emissions reductions. It is world leaders who make commitments in terms of supporting developing nations with, with finance. Uh, and so, um, if I can put it like this, it is on them to collectively deliver at COP. But the G20 ultimately represents 80% of global emissions. Here's Julia Zemiro, a much-loved stage personality speaking here for all of us. And yes, I'm Julie Zemiro. Thank you. And you might be thinking you're not a scientist or an economist, and that is correct. Uh, I'm an artist uh, and I'm a good communicator of ideas. I know how to listen and I play well with others. And because I'm an artist, sometimes we get told, we don't need your advice, just shut up and sing, or host in my case. So thank you so much for asking me. So hello, beware. I'm an artist. And yes, creative types, dancers, singers, clowns, musicians, comedians, acrobats, technical crew, hosts, we, get, we do get to work at all manner of events, at Parliament House, at an ambassador's drinks, a corporate function, a private function in someone's home, and we see it all. We see the lavish setups, the expensive wine. We see the change room they give us in the toilet. We perform, we do our job, and people love us because we're so entertaining. And often we get asked back to entertain off the clock at drinks after, and you keep seeing the discrepancy between the levels in our society, the hired kitchen staff working overtime, the butler's pantry the size of a bedroom. Artists do get a free pass into privileged and struggling worlds most people don't see, and we're dangerous because we see the artifice of one and the truth of the other. We see through it. We're guests there. So when I host these events and I take a few liberties, most often one of the politicians or leaders of industry will say to me afterwards, oh, I'm so glad you said that, but I can't. I say, what do you mean? I say, well, I could never say what you just said. And I say, what, the truth? So we get employed as artists to come to your functions and entertain and often push the envelope and we kind of do some of the work for you, then if we go too far, it's get back in your box. Beware of artists.
They might just tell the truth. Now, clearly, I believe in climate change and the signs because I'm here. I'm curious and I'm also terrified about climate change. And sure, if you think about climate change 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's terrifying. I mean, you'd never sleep. So when I see Extinction Rebellion protesters daub red paint on Parliament House, I think, well, of course. Or super glue their hands to the glass door, I think, yes. When punters and media complain, but that's vandalism, I marvel at their concern about having to remove some paint from a wall when they don't seem devastated about the death and displacement of nearly 3 billion animals in the bushfires of 2019 and 2020. And look, before you say, but Parliament is a venerated building, the way women are treated in that building just demoted it. Maybe that kind of extreme activism isn't to your taste, but it's becoming more to mine. Drastic action works. I get it. Now, in this country, we don't like to talk about politics and certainly not climate change. Oh, my God, I'm so totally not really into politics or... Oh, come on, don't get all political on me. We were having fun. Or, oh, yeah, here we go, climate change. She's on the climate change again. This will be good. People hate talking about it because it's deeply uncomfortable to face facts. Last year when we saw people huddling on beaches under a black daytime sky fringed with orange flames, fires were creating their own weather. In regional and rural areas, danger is close. In the suburbs of, say, Sydney, not so much. We were not threatened by obvious fire, but the heaviness of smoke in Coogee, as I visited a friend, felt apocalyptic and people were just going about their day, getting a coffee, going to the supermarket, no urgency in their steps. There is still a disconnection for city people between what's happening around them and how we can vote to change it. How are people not standing on the street screaming at each other? in horror. And look, I know if we thought about this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I mean, it's terrifying. We'd never get any sleep. I understand that people feel that way, but you can think about it for one hour a day. Now, not all the responsibility is with politicians in Canberra because it's ours to give in the first place. The majority of politicians don't want to consult or listen. Some party members can occasionally go rogue, but rarely. An independent candidate certainly can. They represent their electorate directly, the grassroots approach. Find the voices of groups in your electorate. Get involved. Explore the alternatives. But whatever a politician's motive may be to make you look away or switch off, don't give them what they want. Take responsibility. And I don't mean you. I mean your friends and family who are still not quite over the line. Take responsibility and do some research about them online. It will open your eyes. Wake up. When we talk about saving the planet, that means us too. We're on the planet. We live from the planet. So vote for yourself. We are killing this planet and everyone wants to go to space. You know, space to me is dessert. It should be a reward for having looked after this planet in the first place. As my friend comedian Alice Fraser says, why do you want to go to space? We are in space. We are. We are the planet, so we are killing ourselves and we are kidding ourselves if we think that's not true. We have expectations of our children that we don't carry through ourselves. Fight for what you believe in, speak up, and we, the adults, don't. 
or fight for what you believe in, speak up and not too much, settle down. Jesus, here we go. She's on about climate change again and she's 12. Beware of artists. I'm 54 and I'm here to help the young ones. I want to take responsibility, feel the fear of what's going on and turn it into a collective act by talking to even just one friend and see what happens. Lighten the mood if I have to, but also have that tricky, uncomfortable conversation around, do you know who you'll vote for and why? I want people to go to the next election having done the study. Elections always feel like an exam, and they are. You go into that booth and no one can see what you're writing. You've got your little pencil and your two metres of long paper to choose who will make decisions about your life. You're not interested in politics. This is what this is, your life. COVID provided us with time to reflect on how our lives are run. Didn't we see the layers of the onion peel away? This is how things are done. This election has to be different. People of all stripes walked at the school strike for climate in 2019. I chatted with people who said, I've never marched for anything before, but this time I just had to. Seeing those children and teenagers march would shame us all. Helping them is the urgent right thing to do. From now until the election, I want to tap into that feeling I just had to. I see my job as to keep having one-on-one conversations. Social media doesn't connect with people in that way. If you see me on the street, please come up to me and let's chat. I always think of Greta Thunberg's line, the magnificent Greta, when she was still a child saying, I don't want your hope, I want your panic. You have my panic and I'm listening because if we don't listen, come Armageddon, when the earth is scorched, the climate wars have begun, and it's not a film or a Netflix TV series, it's real, and we've got no electricity or internet, we can only come out in the relative cool of the night, bleary-eyed, sitting in a circle, who will keep us entertained? Who will we look to? Or rather, who will we look to to make us feel and dance and laugh? and sing, and remember, it will be the artists. And if it happens tomorrow and, say, Scott Morrison or Barnaby Joyce come to watch my apocalyptic show, we'll be full. They'll be turned away because they could have done so much with the position they have and they have done so little. Thank you. Of all the life at your command, you have the right to make or mend, to break or blights within your might. But what will you tell yourself at night? So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show, the last episode in the series On the Road to Glasgow. I'm very grateful to the Covering Climate Now group, which invited us to exclusive press conferences with Antonio Gutierrez and Alok Sharma. Also many thanks to Wayne Smith and the team at Smart Energy Council. Their Global Race to Zero conference is linked to the podcast summary, where you can see the video. Special thanks to Julia Zemiro, Annika Molesworth, 
Professor Johan Rockström and Nigel Topping. Thanks also to Councillor Kathy Oak and Dr. Virginia Marshall. And thanks to James Whelan from Canna, who sent me their podcast. I've tried to give you a taste of all the energy going into the momentous conference called COP26. Thanks also for the music, Miguel Hitwale and the Ecopella Choir singing Stand Up Tall, You Singers All. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.